0: Alright guys, and if you will, you can start heading towards the book of Colossians. We're going to continue our study over there. Uh, It's good to be back with everybody today. I told you guys the last time that I was with you that uh, I enjoyed what we were doing, what Brother John's doing on Sunday as well, uh, just preaching straight through a book. Uh, And I told you that I enjoyed doing that because you hit topics that you would probably Almost never talk about if you were just preaching topically. If you were trying to come up with something off the top of your head, uh, last week or the last time I was with you, we talked about the Apostle Paul's ministry, and I said I, I don't know if I would ever think to do a sermon about that if I was preaching topically. I can tell you a hundred percent for sure that I would never think to do it twice in a row because that's what we're going to do today. That is also the next paragraph that we're looking at. That is its subject. So if you'll turn to the Book of Colossians, Chapter Two. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 5 today. And if you would, stand with me, please, in honor of reading God's Word. We're going to start in verse 1, where Paul tells us, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And you may be seated. Thank you. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to begin our discussion in verse 1 where the Apostle Paul tells us about his striving for those who have not seen his face in the flesh. So he's talking about people, the Colossians, the Laodiceans, other groups that have never met him. He's never been in these churches. He might know somebody from the church, but he does not know the church that he's talking to. And he talks about the striving or the conflict That he has. And we've talked a lot about that before all of the opposition, all of the difficulty that the Apostle Paul had. He's in prison writing this letter right now. But that's really not the emphasis that he has in verse 1. What he's really trying to point us to is the care that he has for these churches, even the ones that do not know them. And he tells us that he wishes that they knew, that he wishes that they really understood how willing he was to go through conflict and struggle for their good. It's no secret anybody that reads Scripture can see that Paul's job was hard. There were difficult circumstances. There were false teachers. There were people trying to undermine his ministry at every turn. Uh, Like we talked about earlier, at this time of writing, he's in prison. He had all kinds of things on his plate. But he is stressing the point here that he truly does care for the Colossians and for the others that have not met him in the past. Uh, He says the same thing about the Laodiceans. Uh, That's just a church that's right up the road from Colossians. If he was riding to Salem, they'd be in Viola. It's just right up the road from where he's at right now. Uh, The Laodiceans are are famous for being told by Jesus in Revelation 3 that they're lukewarm. So that's not really something that you want to be famous for, but uh, that's the other group that he's talking to. Uh, If you would, I I want to go ahead and look at a, a related verse in the book of Ephesians real quick. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. I think this is an interesting point for us. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers... Against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, so, so we're talking about Paul struggling for people, working hard, suffering if need be. and I thought it was an interesting point to say, who are, is he struggling against exactly? Uh, he identifies that for us in verse six. How do we overco- or in chapter six, how do we overcome the ones that he's talking about having to struggle against? Uh, whenever Paul talks in many places about the, the shameful treatment he's had or the conflict that he's endured, we need to remember who is behind those conflicts. And he tells us here against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. He he is fighting spiritual battles. And he goes on later in this very chapter to tell us exactly how we overcome those enemies. How do we win those battles? He tells us we are to put on the full armor of God. And I'd love to walk through all of that with you, but that'd be a whole sermon in and of itself. But uh, on the short side of things, he tells them to put on truth and righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Uh, How do we overcome those that we're struggling against? Well, we Imitate people like Epaphras in Colossians chapter 4 where we're told uh, he struggles on behalf of the Colossians in his prayers, that they would stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. We are called to participate in the same struggles that Paul had, the same conflicts, the same difficulties. The question that I have today is, do we care enough about the body of Christ to struggle, to conflict the same way that the Apostle Paul did. Uh, we're told many places to strive in Scripture. In Hebrews 4, we're told to strive to enter into the rest of God. In Luke 13, we're told to strive to enter the narrow gate because many won't. In 2 Timothy 2.15, we're told to strive to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. And all of those things are worth striving for. But in all of those situations, you're the beneficiary of the striving. You're directly involved. You directly benefit from it. What I would want to know is do we care enough about God's people to struggle for them, for their benefit, for their good? Do we care enough about them to struggle in our prayers the way that Epaphras did or Paul did? Uh, Would we face the same sort of opposition that Paul did for a group of people that we did not even know? We're told in Scripture that we are to preach the gospel to every creature all over the world. Uh, I wouldn't count on those forces of darkness giving us any ground for free. I wouldn't count on them just retreating and giving us those souls. I don't think that's in their plans. Uh, and 2 Timothy 3 tells us that everyone who tries to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. We're to be ready. We need to be ready to struggle, to con- to be enter conflict the same way that Paul did. And we need to remember that while our first priority is to take care of those God has entrusted us with, our families, our local church, we need to do the same thing that he did in verse 1 here. We need to keep in mind that Christ's kingdom is bigger than this building. It's bigger than this group of people. I hear Leroy praying for missionaries every Tuesday morning. I hear people doing the things that we need to be doing. We need to understand that God's kingdom is bigger than just us. That the believer in the church down the street is just as much your brother as the person sitting next to you right now. All right, and moving on to verse 2 here. Everybody loves verse 3. That, that's the famous one. That's the one that everybody always memorizes. I, I think that verse 2 is a little bit underrated. I mean, why, why bother if you're Paul? Well, what's he trying to accomplish? He's talked twice now about the, the struggles or the suffering, the conflict that he's gone through. What is he wanting to see happen? And he, he tells us in verse 2. He gives us three things that he wants to see. The first thing he wants to see is the hearts of the Colossians encouraged. Uh, Your your translation might say comforted or consoled, something along those lines. Uh, Their heart is not just their emotions. He's not just wanting them to have healthy emotions. He is wanting their thoughts, their mind, the deepest parts of their being to be encouraged and comforted. Uh, As believers, he wants them to be cheered and lifted up. We have much to be encouraged about. This is not something that we have to lie about. We don't have to put on a face or something like that. We have much to be encouraged of. We read about it all over the scriptures. In Joshua 1.9, Joshua is told, Do not be frightened or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God's presence, God's help itself can be an encouragement, a comfort for us. In John 16, Jesus tells us that we can have peace In the world we'll have tribulation, but Christ has overcome the world. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we're told whether we are awake or asleep, that's alive or dead, Christ died for us so that we could live with him. In Romans 8, we're told what shall we say if God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, And not only do we have all of the comforts that the Word of God gives us, all of the assurances, the promises of His presence, the promise He will be with us, the promise He will be for us, He's given us more than just that. He's given us a family, a body of people that we can come to and gather together with. Uh, In Hebrews chapter 10, we're told, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to gather together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. The people of God can be an encouragement to us. I mean, praise God for all the encouragement we've been given. He goes on from there, and the next thing he talks about is being knit together in love. Uh, And that's saying a lot in a a very small little section right there, so we're going to break it up a little bit. I want to talk about unity And I want to talk about love. That's what we're talking about right here. All right, so uh, he desires that we would be one. We would be united. We would be knit together. Uh, What does that mean? That means that we're without factions and infighting, that we are brought together. I'm going to read a, a passage from the book of Romans chapter 15. verses 5 and 6, where Paul tells us, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. Why? That you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, why is unity so important? Why is us being uh, of one mind, of one love? Why why does that matter? And We're told here that it is uh, because we need to bring glory to God together with one mouth. Uh, such a high calling should lead us to always pursue peace, as we're told to do in Romans 14, or to live in harmony with one another, as we're told in Romans 12. In Psalm 133, we're told, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Philippians two two says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. Now doesn't that sound good? That does sound good, right? It also sounds pretty hard. It's not easy. Uh, division has plagued the church everywhere. Uh, you, know, you can't turn around without a church splitting somewhere or a denomination dividing into two. And we'll see in a passage later that sometimes this can be necessary. Sometimes separating from evil is important. But a split in a church is always tragic. Losing unity is always a tragedy. Now I'm not going to lie to you, I don't have all of the answers there. Um, But I know that this is important. I know that we are to pursue peace and harmony with one another. I know that in John chapter 17, Jesus tells us he wants us to be perfectly one, to be one just as he and the Father are one. And I believe that if we will be faithful, God will bless us. I think that's a good place to start. And the next place that I think we need to go from there, uh, the passage in Philippians chapter 2 tells us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I I think that would probably help a little bit too. And Paul goes on to tell us even more. In verse 2, we're told to be knit together in love. Very important phrase. We're told to be knit together in love. Now I know that you know every single sermon. It's just faith, hope, and love. Uh, it's all the time. You you hear about it on Sunday. You hear about it on Wednesday. Don't don't tune it out. There, there's so much about those subjects in Scripture. You're nev- you're never going to run out. Okay. Now, I want to talk about two things today. I want to talk about the fact that love is a uniting force. It's something that brings us together. I also want to talk about the fact that it is an atmosphere that as believers we are called to live in. So I've got two scriptures, and this will be pretty back-to-back, but I want to have one for both of those points that I just made. The first one is in Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, which says, But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. It is the thing that binds things together. It is what helps us to attain unity. And the next one will be in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, where Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now, we see here that we are commanded by our Lord himself to love one another. we're told in the chapter before this, If we love him, we'll keep his commandments. In 1 John chapter 4, we're told if anyone says he loves God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Uh, There is no two ways about it. You don't get God without the family. You don't get the family without God. They go together. We're told in Scripture that without love, we are nothing. It doesn't matter how gifted or talented we are. We are to love like Christ who died for us while we were still sinners. We're told in Scripture to love your enemies. We're told to love one another. We're told to love your neighbor. We're told to let all you do be done in love. Jesus tells us the greatest commandment in Scripture is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In Galatians 5, we're told through love serve one another. Now, Do you think that, uh, have I convinced you, is, is it important yet? Is, have I convinced you it's everywhere? It's in every book. I mean, it's all over the place. This is something that we must have it is essential and i want to talk just a minute about what does that practically look like does the bible give us a description of what love is uh, it tells us a lot of course in several places we're told in romans 12 that love should be genuine it, it's not fake it's not something that you just put on in public we're told in romans 13 that it should do no harm to your neighbor love does no harm we're told in 1 john chapter 3 that love is not about talking It is about deeds. It is about actions when the apostle tells us, love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. But I think some of the most beautiful words in all of scripture answer this. I don't think that I've ever read this to you guys, but I'm absolutely sure everybody in here has heard it before, but you're going to hear it again. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4, where Paul tells us, Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails." And Paul tells us to be united and knit together to live in that love. So he tells us he wants us to be encouraged. He wants us knit together in love. He also tells us that he wants us to have knowledge. You'll see in verse 2, after he talks about love, he says, "...attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding." So he wants us to attain the full assurance of understanding to knowledge of the mystery of God. Uh, One of Paul's great goals, especially in the book of Colossians, was that we know Christ. And it says in verse 3, "...in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." And I want to go back and this, but this might be a little bit of review for just a minute, but we've kind of talked about this a little bit before. Back in chapter 1... If you look at verses 9 and 10, Paul says, "For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God." So what does he tell us in verse 3? He tells us where that knowledge, where that wisdom is located. It is in Christ. He talks about uh, the knowledge of the mystery that we talked about last week. Christ in you, Christ himself. It says in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Something that is valuable beyond imagination. Scripture in many places talks about how wisdom is, is more valuable than gold. It's better than silver. It's sweeter than honey. Uh, We're told over and over and over again the the surpassing value of knowing God. Uh, And notice he says, all wisdom and knowledge. All wisdom and knowledge. Uh, He is emphasizing the fact that it's everything. Nothing is lacking. All that we need to know is found in him. How to gain life, how to live when we have it, it is made available to anybody in Christ and Matthew Henry one of the commentators that I read says that the treasures in Christ are hidden for us not from us now, it is something that is available to us all uh, And along those same lines in the book of James chapter 1 verse 5 we're told if any of you lack wisdom let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him It doesn't get any more available than that. All we have to do is ask. It's not only for some special spiritual group. Uh, There's no other way to attain it. We're told in another place in Scripture that everyone who hears the words of Christ and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. We're told in Scripture that God's wisdom in Christ far exceeds ours. In Romans 11, we're told, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways. As such, we can trust Him, we can follow Him, we can learn from Him. In Proverbs 3, we're told, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. Those treasures are not hidden anywhere else. And that's a very important point for some of the stuff that we're about to talk about in coming weeks. They aren't hidden in the human traditions that he talks about in verse 8. They're not found in the shadows that we used to go through that he talks about in verse 17. They're not hidden in the false humility he talks about in verse 18 or any of the other false teachings that he's going to go through. In Jesus, we find exactly what we need. All right, so go ahead and we're going to take a look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. That is the first explicit mention of false teaching or false teachers. We're having a little bit of a, a transition here. Paul's goal is to see people reconciled to God, to see them brought to maturity in the faith, to be made holy and blameless. And all this teaching about Jesus that he's given us over the last few weeks, all of this about him being the creator, the image of God, the firstborn over all creation, all of this talk about how he's reconciled us through his death on the cross, how he has saved us from our sins. All this talk about how all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him is to keep us from these false teachings. Both the Colossians and us have people who want to deceive us. And I want to make one important point here. If you'll look at verse 4, how do they deceive people? It says, with persuasive words. And with that, I want to look at Romans chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 17 and 18 where he says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Uh, There are false teachers out there. Uh, I'm not going to go through and and name names right now, not necessarily because I don't believe in naming names, because there's too many names. Uh, We'd be here all night. There are armies of people out there who would love nothing more than to see you deceived. Biblical Christianity is under an absolute assault from every direction you can possibly imagine. From secularism, from false religions, from heresy within the church being taught by false teachers. Just like in Paul's day, those false teachers will come along and they will slap a nice label on their poison and they will tell you that it is good for you. And they will use persuasive words. They will make it sound good. They will use flattery and false speech like we just talked about. You need to know that Satan is the father of lies and he's really good at it. Uh, He deceived Eve in the garden. And our concern is that you not be deceived in the same way. What kind of things do they say? Uh, In Jude 1-4, we're told that false teachers have crept in. That they have perverted the grace of God and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, False teachers do two things. They always tell you that sin is okay. They tell you that it doesn't have consequences. That God isn't there or that he doesn't care. And that they deny Christ. Something about him. Something about who he is. Something about what he's done. They're never going to accept the true biblical Jesus. I want you to not be led away with persuasive words. You have the truth because we have all wisdom and knowledge in Christ. In verse 5, Paul tells them that he is absent in the flesh, but he is with them in the spirit. He expresses his care for them. A distance may separate them, but he is with them in heart. And he tells them that he is rejoicing in their preparedness, their order, their steadfastness. We're told in Scripture that uh, everything should be done decently and in good order. That God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And he compliments them on their order. And he also compliments them on their steadfastness, that they are firm in the faith. Uh, When temptations come, we must stand firm. Uh, We must stand firm on the teachings that we've received. We have to stand firm under trials. Uh, We have to hold fast the hope and faith that we have. You put these things together, they were ready for whatever difficult times were going to come. And I just want to give a couple of points of of application for today. Uh, Each of these verses, be ready for conflict. Uh, It comes to all of us and and care enough about the whole body of Christ to fight that conflict. Uh, Remember the encouragement that we have in God and the unity that we need in Christ. Remember that all wisdom and knowledge we need is found in Him. Uh, Beware of false teaching. Uh, Even when it sounds persuasive, be ready to test and prove all things. Uh, And retain our order and steadfastness. Be firm in the faith unwavering for any reason. Uh, Guys, the Savior that Paul talked about is the same Savior that we have today. If anybody here would like to talk about Christ, would like to talk about the salvation that he has offered you, we're always here. And that's all I've got for you today. So we're going to go ahead and pray out. Will you pray us out, James?